so I usually get a lot of um, queries about who's who's chanting that song and what it is. And usually, people think it's the Dalai Lama, which it isn't. Um, it's uh, it's 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 a Dutch man who goes by the name Stone Love. Not exactly a Buddhist name, as far as I can tell. Um, and he's actually singing. It's the reason I played it tonight. Is it's a healing chant, and it's um, it really evokes this quality of compassion very much that I want to speak about tonight. So he's actually chanting a um, an old Vedic uh, text from ancient India. Um, so there you go. You can get it on iTunes. <laughs> Just Google Stone Love, and it's a it's a it's a sixty-five minute song. So you get your money's worth for ninety-nine cents. <laughs> I don't know if they charge ninety-nine cents, but you know. So the last time I was here, I talked about the quality of metta being the primary uh, quality of the heart, um, or one of the primary qualities. Can it be more than one primary quality? I don't know. Uh, central quality in, the, in this teaching of the Brahma Viharas, the, uh, what the Buddha called these abodes of the heart, these places that, that, that where we can live in a heart these uh, capacities, these potentials. Um, the first and the primary being loving-kindness, and uh, the second and out of, out of, out of loving-kindness uh, arises compassion when we meet, when the heart, the heart is like a, I think, another heart in Buddhism, of course, is, um, comes from the word citta. Citta is uh, often translated as mind, um, but really it means heart-mind, and the, the mind resides in the heart in Buddhist thought. So um, this, this heart-mind is, like is like a multifaceted jewel, and um, its central quality being love. But when this, this heart turns towards different experiences in life, it, it, it evolves into different qualities, and, and when, the heart, when the heart is open... And the heart, and we meet a situation, a person in life that's painful, that's difficult, that's suffering, that's hurting. The heart naturally responds with this quality of care, of this wish to relieve the suffering. It's um, the Buddha called it the, the quivering of the heart because we feel the suffering that we connect with. That we you know, compassion is to feel the suffering of. So it's a very beautiful quality. It's a very courageous quality. And I'll say more about why that is. So, and of course, it's really a quality that's very central, not just in our spiritual lives, but in our lives in general. You know, being alive, being in the body, being alive at this time, you know, requires a lot of open-heartedness and a lot of compassion. Because there's so much suffering in this world, there's so much pain, and it's hard to 
you know, go by, you know, in, in, a, in a single day without confronting different levels of suffering. You know, the suffering that's coming from this economy, for one. You know, the amount of unemployment and fear and uh, hardship and people losing their homes and their jobs and their life savings and, you know, people's physical suffering, the sudden, you know, arising of a illness or a death or a tragedy, you know, on every level. Just having a human body is worthy of compassion. You know, it's, we suffer a lot with these bodies. So, and it's challenging to maintain the heart, to keep the heart open. Have you noticed? You know, watching TV, you know, listening to the news, reading the paper, it's hard to keep a heart that's open because it's, it's painful. And the more, we, the, more we, the more we meditate, the more we practice, the more we cultivate presence and awareness, the more sensitive we become and the more we feel the less we are interested in running away from suffering and running away and numbing out, checking out. You know, we want to be present, we want to be conscious. And the price of that is we, we, we open to the pain, to the suffering. It requires a lot of courage to stand in the middle of a situation or be with somebody or be with you know, some of the global suffering that's happening and stay open, not to just, you know, find ourselves at the refrigerator door, you know, or the bar or wherever it is we go to check out, the TV. And also what I want to talk about is, is the, the particular suffering, the particular pain that we experience on the spiritual path. That that also is not an easy journey. If we're really sincere, if we're really walking this path with integrity and honesty, it requires that we look at ourselves, that we face ourselves, that we face not just our pain, but also our stuff, our neurosis, our foibles, uh, the ways that we create suffering for ourselves and others. And it's very easy as we become more awake, more, more attentive, uh, to be more critical. Because we see, you know, the, the awareness grows quicker than our capacity to change. So we see all these things that we, we know that aren't helpful or aren't useful or aren't kind or aren't good things that we do, and yet the habits, you know, we're creatures of habit. <coughs> the habits are deep. And so um, it's very easy for, the, for the, the inner critic who now has a kind of a spiritual garb, you know, he's now the spiritual critic, you know, our Buddhist critic, our meditation critic, who's beating us up for not being, you know, the all-enlightened, all-loving Buddha. Um, you know, we, we, it requires a certain... A capacity of um, kindness towards ourselves for the ways that we see us, we see ourselves tripping ourselves up, doing things that we know aren't that great, aren't for our well-being. I just came off a, re- a retreat on Sunday. This was yesterday. It was, in a, it was an eight-day retreat. And um, it was a really jolly retreat. It was on the theme of narcissism. (laughs) 
So we did, it was, it was a retreat on, on self-realization and Gnosticism. And actually it was an incredibly painful retreat to look really closely and honestly at all the different ways that, we, uh, that we're narcissistic. Which, you know, in layman's terms, all the ways really that we're functioning from the level of ego, which is most of the time. <laughs> most of the things we do have a narcissistic flavor. We do things because we want to be seen. We want to get attention. We want to be liked. We want to be approved of. We want to be validated. We want to be affirmed. Think about something you don't. Think about something you do that doesn't involve one of those facets, <laughs> where you simply do it just for the sake of it. And if there's something you do that doesn't have any flavor of, wow, look at me, a little aggrandizement, a little hmm, doing pretty good. Hope somebody's noticing. Even when we're meditating, oh, now I'm kind of getting it. Oh, yeah, I'm pretty cool at this now. Yeah, I'm getting it. I'll teach this next week, you know, become a teacher. And... Enlightenment, here we come. Wait till I tell my friends about how cool my meditation was. They'll be so impressed. You know, they'll think I'm so enlightened. You know, so the, 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 the ego, the mind, has a way of co-opting every experience into its fold, into its, oh, maybe I can use this to bolster myself, bolster this little fragile, insecure structure that it really is. Because it's really built on sand, the ego structure. It's always trying, needing to prop itself up. And so when we start to see this really closely, and, and the more we wake up, the more we see the subtlety and the pervasiveness of the way uh, ego habits act out. And they're so familiar, we don't even, mostly don't notice them. We don't see how painful they actually are. When we actually feel that underneath all those habits of wanting to be seen, wanting to be liked, wanting to be known, wanting to be special. Anybody here doesn't want to be special? Just want to be seen for who you are. You know, when, we, when we really see how, how profoundly um, prolific that activity is, we also can feel the pain of it. It's in tremendous suffering underneath that. Because underneath that is what? If we're needing to be seen, if we're desperate to be liked, to be approved of, to have attention, what's underneath that? The fear of that, the fear of loss of that, the emptiness, the lack, the deficiency, that too is incredibly painful. And what's needed as we start to wake up and see these really painful <coughs> tendencies is compassion. It's to hold ourselves with this spirit of tenderness. And partly we need compassion because if we don't have that field of kindness and acceptance and warmth, we actually won't open. Because if, if we're going to open and we're going to be slamming ourselves, oh my God, you're so narcissistic, you're so self-centered, you're so conceited, you're so needy, you're so wanting attention. We're not going to open. We're going to stay shut down. So when we open to these very difficult places, especially these very core egoic places, it's essential that we have this quality of kindness, of compassion, this field to receive it. Not to judge, but to go, oh, wow, look at that. 
everything I do in some way as a movement to be seen or to be approved or to be liked or to be noticed. Either it's from myself or from people around me, my partner, my boss, my parents. Does that resonate with you? Yeah. yeah. It's something we often actually don't talk about, that layer of, that, that very deep layer of, it's like an egoic longing, profound, that we all suffer from. And what I came to understand in this, this course that I was on was the relationship between awakening and the revelation of the, the depth of narcissism, the depth of that ego striving to be seen. And uh, what I understand is that, you know, generally in our culture, it's like, it's, it's like the most uncool thing to be narcissistic. Like everybody wants to be seen, but nobody wants to be seen to be narcissistic. Nobody wants to be seen to see, to pretend to be, or seen to be inflating, to be, to, you know, be aggrandized and to be, you know, wanting that. And yet we all want it. That's the irony. And, so, and again, so it's very easy when we see that in somebody else to be very judgmental. Oh, look, look at so-and-so. Look, look at how you know, puffed up they are. and They're just so full of themselves. And you know, I mean, you can, you, can look, you can have that slant if you were watching TV last night from 5.30 to 8.30. <laughs> I usually do have that, but I had a different perspective on, on it yesterday watching. It was, I was really tuned into the, the sweetness of of that event and the the um, the goodness, you know. Yes, people want to be seen, and yes, there's a lot of uh, feeding of, of and stroking of people's egos, and there's a lot of genuine beauty and art and sincerity. So to be watchful of the judgment inward, to be watchful of the judgment outward. The same, it's the same rejection of that peace in ourselves that we afraid that will be seen. So compassion. So here's a story for you. This is from one lovely book called um, How Can I Help? It's an old classic on compassion and service. It says, this uh, person writes, Here in a neonatal intensive care unit, you see incredible beauty and incredible pain. And you have to figure out how to be with both. The children are beautiful because you just get to know them. You can't nurse them, you can't really nurse them without knowing them. And you can't know them, really know them, without seeing their beauty. What can be more beauty than their innocence? It was the use of machines and the extraordinary medical measures that moved some of us to see how much distance we were putting between ourselves and the infants. Even if the machines weren't there, though, there was that tendency to keep it impersonal, to keep your distance. And you knew that wasn't any good for the children, So a group of us began to be with the children more, and when it got too hard and we'd break down, we'd support each other and talk it over. The more we opened up, it just became natural that we began this new practice of holding infants when the time would come for them to die. It wasn't a decision as much as something we'd we'd become ready to do. So at the end, we'd take them off the monitors and into our arms in a rocker, 
and would sit with them in their final moments. It tears you apart because holding them, sometimes you can feel them go. And the death itself is different. And the death itself is different. On the machines, it's monitored as brain death. In your arms, it's the heart and the breath. You feel ten dozen things at once. Terrible sadness because you'd become attached to the child, but glad too because their suffering is about to end. Maybe anger at the world or a god or whatever for allowing this to happen. And such empathy for the parents. And something like awe and wonder. Like there must be some kind of explanation for all of this, which you don't yet understand. And patience too, that things become more clear in time. And peace of mind because you're doing the best you can. And humble to be present at such a moment. All of the above, often and at once. So I like that story because it speaks to the multifaceted uh, quality of compassion. You know, there's, the, there's the presence and there's the attention and there's the connection. And then there's this whole slew of responses. The, the pain, the, the empathy, the sadness, the rage. The, and it's being held in this, in this vast field of care, genuine care. <coughs> so I want to say a little about how compassion is defined um, by the Buddha and others in this tradition. So as I said earlier, the, the, the Buddha talked about compassion as this quivering of the heart. We actually feel some physical, empathic response, some um, resonance in our being. When we, when we say you're your child or your loved one, beloved, comes and tells you about some difficult pain they're going through. You know, we feel it. When our hearts are open, we feel that. We can, we can it's, that, it's that suffering with. We actually sense that in our own being. It's what allows us to connect. It's that quality of empathy where we feel, we have the capacity to feel another suffering. Just like if somebody during the meditation, which often happens here, um, somebody, you hear somebody tearing up or crying, often one of the heart's natural responses is that we feel. We feel that tenderness. We feel that wish for that person not to be suffering. And it is a very tender quality. It's another way I f- understand compassion is this tenderness of heart. Our heart becomes tenderized by the pain in the world when we stay open to it, if we, when we don't stay open to it, the heart hardens, becomes brittle, like a shell around it. But if we don't do that, it becomes tender, becomes soft, becomes open. And it's also this natural feeling of care. I talked last week about this instinctual nature of love, that the heart's na- nature is to want to be kind, to want to care, to want to have that warmth um, and it's the same with compassion. When the heart is left to its own devices, it naturally wants others to be free of pain. I often read this story um, about, this is from the tsunami um, in Sri Lanka, when uh, that tsunami in, several years ago that wiped out a lot of the coast and um, actually, it wasn't Sri Lanka. This is in Kenya. 
and a, um, a hippo became separated from his mother, got swept downstream. Apparently, his, the, the, mother's, the, the hippo's mother died. And um, they brought the hippo into a sanctuary because the, the, uh, it would be rejected by other adult hippos. And in the sanctuary, there was this 120-year-old tortoise, this giant tortoise, about the size of the stage, one of these huge things. And the, um, the tortoise took the hippo under its wing, or under its shell. So you have this 300, what's that, 550-pound hippo, baby hippo, <laughs> and this massive tortoise. And the hippo is smaller than the tortoise, it looks like. And, um, and this beautiful picture of the hippo leaning up against the shell of the tortoise, and the tortoise kind of looking over to the hippo. And so they would hang out together. And the hippo became very aggressive whenever anybody would come close to the tortoise. He'd be very protective of mom. So, you know, it's very natural, this capacity in the animal world, in the human world. Here's a story that I love that um, some of you may have heard. I think Jack tells this story sometimes. It's from a doctor who's a surgeon. Um, and again, it's speaking to this, this very instinctual impulse to want to, to care. So he writes, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy and clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. As surgeon, I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh, I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on on the opposite, opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself, he and this wry mouth who gaze and touch each other so generously? The woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say, it is because because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once I know who he is. I understand, and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a god. Unmindful of my presence, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I'm so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works. I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals, and I hold my breath and let the wonder in. So some com- so compassion's like that sometimes. It's very simple and incredibly sweet, incredibly tender, incredibly attuned to the particular suffering of somebody. Sometimes we feel compassion as a great sadness, like when we hear about species becoming extinct, species piling up on the endangered species list. We hear about tragedies, and there's just the the, the, um, inevitable tragedies of living on this earth. You know, we hear about an earthquake or something like that where suddenly, you know, Thousands of lives are completely destroyed. And there's, and there's, there's no way to really hold that but this, with this tender sadness at the, the reality of what it's like to be in this world. And one of the things that, that I think suffering, you know, we, we bond through suffering, but we also bond through this feeling of commonality 
that we that arises out of the connection of compassion. It's one of the things that really you know, pulls people together. Is feeling that that we all share in this similar situation, the the commonality of the fragility of life, the vulnerability that we never know what's going to happen in the next moment. We never know. We go for a routine checkup and what the diagnosis might be. You know, and we all have stories of that, the sudden, you know, lives changing in an instant in a phone call and a doctor's visit, step across the road. There's a lovely story that the Buddha talked, the Buddha, from the Buddha's life story of um, when a young woman who'd born her first male child um, in India, northern India, back in the day, and he, her son had just died, and she was incredibly distraught and hysterical and grief-stricken. And she'd heard about the Buddha being this great saint and hoped that maybe he had some powers that could bring her son back to life. And so she took her son to him and said, you know, help me, I'm, I'm distressed, I'll do anything, anything you, you ask to help me bring my son back to life. And, he said, and the Buddha said, well, I'll, I'll help you, but first you must go and get a mustard seed from a house where there's been no death, where there's been no, where there's been no, nobody passing away in the family. So she says, great, I'll go do that. So she went to the local village and knocked on the door and said, you know, I, I need a mustard seed. And the person says, oh, sure, I can get you a mustard seed. She said, well, but it must come, it must, there must be no death in this house. Nobody must have died here. And the person laughs, said, what do you mean, no death? It's, we've had lots of deaths. She goes to the next house and gets the same response. She goes all the way through the village. And by the time she gets around the village, she realizes this is such a profound, human, universal experience. And she buries her son, goes back to the Buddha, and... Uh, becomes a nun, actually, and becomes one of the, these great awakened nuns, as these stories often go. You know, and sometimes that burning of the suffering and the opening to that can be a, a tremendous fuel for our spiritual life. You know, compassion is also a wonderful uh, support for... Um, for not allowing the heart to close in judgment. It's so easy for us to get caught in judgment with others, especially if we see people doing things we, don't, we think that are causing harm, things that we think are unskillful or just plain stupid, like our politicians. You know? um, or people who are just being annoying, you know, just being kind of, you know, we all you know people like that where you know, people are just a pain, and they, and they make their lives difficult and make everybody else's lives difficult. When we have this quality of compassion, we're less quick to just write them off, and we're more able to see, usually behind any kind of stuff like that, any kind of acting out, any kind of inflicting suffering is also coming from a deep place of suffering. When we look with the eyes of compassion, we, we look more deeply, we look beyond the surface. So how do we develop this quality in our lives, aside from the, the formal practice, which I'll say a little about. And we, we did a little of that, um, just like with the meta practice, 
you know, the compassion practice is a practice you can do. You can do it as a daily practice. You can do it as something you add on to your meditation practice like we did today. Um, or you can do it just as you go through the day and you see people who are suffering or in pain or you hear about somebody and you just say these phrases to yourself. And like the meta practice, it can seem very benign. You're saying these phrases over and over again. It doesn't really seem like much is happening. But what, what you're doing is you're expressing a very deep intention, a deep wish. You're going against the usual groove of the mind to resist suffering. And you're turning towards it and, and you're offering this very heartfelt wish. It has a very powerful impact. Very helpful for, to do when we're in distress, when we're, when we're anxious or fearful or in panic or anxiety or whatever states we go through. You know, often, often we can't do much about the experience. All we can do is bring a certain mindfulness, presence to it. And in that, wish ourselves to hold it with, with some ease. You know, wish to hold ourselves with some kindness. And just bringing that quality usually allows our being, our nervous system, to, to relax, makes action, makes the experience easier. I remember when I was on a long retreat in, um, on the East Coast at Barry in IMS, our sister center, and was on a, yeah, it was a three-month retreat. And um, in the middle of that retreat, about four or five weeks in, I just touched this really, really raw place, as you sometimes do when you look deeply in yourself, and um, just hit this incredibly, incredibly uh, buried uh, place of uh, pain and wound and suffering, tremendous suffering. And I'd been practicing for a while before then, and I was really glad I, I did, because what happened in that experience was um, the, ex- the experience was very powerful and very um, kind of rocked me, shook me to my core. But what came through was these qualities of uh, mindfulness and compassion. That that uh, this, for whatever seeds had been sown in my past practice that came through, and I was able to hold myself in this very completely, I was a complete wreck for a while. But what was there was this quality of care that I had no idea would come through. It was kind of a new sort of emergence for me, this quality of the heart. And it really showed me how, what a difference that made, that 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 was, that a soothing balm was there to, to hold me in this difficulty. So um, the challenge with, with the quality of compassion, this is, this is the bad news, or it sounds like bad news. I've been saying a little of the good news. The bad news, it's not really bad news, but how does compassion grow? How, do we, how does compassion arise? Compassion arises by turning towards suffering. I know you all wanted it. You, you all drove here through the rain to hear that you all will be served by turning towards pain and suffering. <laughs> it's not what we generally sign up for. Oh, great. Give me some pain and suffering over here. I don't have enough. You know, there's that line by Achan Cha, which I love and I quote a lot. It says here, he says, by running away from suffering, we run towards it. By running away from suffering, we run towards it. We spend most of our lives, naturally, humanly, 
running away from suffering. Because why not? Because it sucks. It's painful. Why would I want to hang out with suffering? Right? But of course, we never can quite run away from it. We can never run away from ourselves. Because it always you know, somehow finds a way of sneaking around the back and popping out in the most unwanted times. So compassion arises when we turn towards the suffering with presence, with awareness, with an open heart. And when we acknowledge the existence of the suffering. You know, I was on this retreat some years ago at um, Gaia House in England. And um, it, was a, it was a month retreat. And uh, it was actually the first retreat I'd done after this long, painful retreat. So I was a little... Uh, reticent about going in because I was sort of a little concerned I would hit the same place. And um, but I was also excited to be back on retreat again. I, I love retreats. And um, but you know, and of course I, you know, as you do when you have a bad experience, you sort of forget about it and you remember all the good times. So I was sort of arriving at the retreat, thinking, yeah, you know, and you know, retreats are good and they're peaceful and mellow and. You know, be in nature, and it's all it's all good and Pollyannish, and um, and you know, I got to the retreat, and it was really hard. It was I was I couldn't concentrate. I was restless. I was distracted. And my body was aching. It was just one of those what we call dukkha retreats, suffering retreats. And of course, I hadn't signed up for a dukkha retreat. I wanted you know, I wanted a happy retreat. So and it went on for like you know this. You know, a week, eight, nine days. It was like, come on already. This is like enough suffering. <laughs> and by the tenth day, I had this, you know, this little insight. And I had the realization, not, it wasn't rocket science, oh, this is suffering. This is what the Buddha talked about. First noble truth, there is suffering in life. Oh, yeah, there is suffering. And it sounds very benign, but that completely transformed the retreat. Because I went from resisting, resisting, resisting the suffering to, oh, this is how it is. This is suffering. It's unpleasant. It's not what I want. It's unsatisfying. This is how it is. And that meeting of it allowed that whole resistance to drop and, and the, the heart to open. It's like, oh yeah, this sucks. It's painful. It's, I'm, you know, I feel for you that you have to go through this. That was the kind of response. So it might not make the actual thing go away, the, the, the trigger go away. Sometimes it does. But it makes the holding of it the, the holding of it is, is where the transformation happens. So, you know, most of the suffering ain't going to go away just because we do our spiritual practice. But how we hold it, how we respond to it, how we relate to it, that's what shifts. That's where we stop, add, stop adding, contributing to the suffering by releasing our own suffering, by stopping resisting and numbing out and actually going, oh yeah, this is suffering, this is painful and allowing the heart to open. And we, when we bring forth more love into the world. And it's very counterintuitive. It's not what the ego thinks, oh, that's, that's not how I'm going to open my heart. I'm going to go and you know, be in nature and go on a retreat and chant, may all beings be happy. And No, it's not how it works, mostly. So turning towards uh, pain turning towards our suffering. Notice what's happening when, when I say that in your, in your, in your, in your being, when you're in your response to response, like, I'm not going to sign up for that, or this guy's out to lunch, or, 
Oh, yes, I've been doing that for 50 years, thank you very much. And it hurts. So this is from um, it's a poem from Rashani. Rashani speaking to this: what comes out of when we turn into that which we fear, into the pain? There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy, and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words, through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound, whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open, to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole, while learning to sing. So I love the power of that. Out of the un- out of the brokenness comes the unbroken. You know, one of the one of the reasons we fear going into the suffering is because we think we're gonna we'll crumble. We think we'll fall apart. We think we'll be dissolved, overwhelmed by the pain. And it's usually not the case. Usually, when we turn towards something, it's much less big and intimidating than we actually thought it was. When we keep doing this to something, it usually tends to grow in stature. So one of the, one of the ways, I, mean, I think I mentioned this last week, one of the ways that, we, that I see that we suffer a lot, often unnecessarily, in my opinion, is um, the suffering that comes from how we relate to ourselves. How we... um, The self-created suffering from the way that we talk to ourselves, judge ourselves, criticize ourselves, push ourselves, berate ourselves. All the stuff that comes from the critic and the judge or whatever you like to call that voice. The way that we treat ourselves with, with cruelty. The Buddha said compassion was the antidote to cruelty. And when I speak to people, what I hear in the, in the dialogue is how cruel they are with themselves. You notice that? The way you talk to yourself? You notice a certain flavor of harshness or intolerance or impatience or impossible high standards or judgment um, condemnation. It's a lot of suffering. I, I had that very strongly when I first started practice for many years and did a lot of this practice, did a lot of loving-kindness practice and compassion practice. And over the years, it softened. And, but what, what really turned it around for me um, was when I actually felt the pain of all of that treatment. When I began, when I would, when I had enough space to listen to the way I was talking to myself, you're so hopeless. You're so pathetic. You're never going to amount to anything. No, 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 no. 
when we actually feel the impact of that, it's very painful. Mostly we don't because we're just so used to it. It's like, no, 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 you're such a klutz, and no, 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 you'll never get anywhere. And it just becomes like road noise, you know, the white noise, you know. But if you actually pay attention and feel, you know, if you imagine your best friend telling you that, right, or your partner telling you that, how would you feel? You wouldn't feel very good. You probably want to hit them too. Uh, you also wouldn't stand up for it. You wouldn't hang around, let them beat you over the head like we do with a critic. So when I, when I actually felt the pain of that, something shifted. It's like, why do I let this in? Why do I keep doing this? This is so brutal to talk to myself like that day after day. And it, something in that moment, the critic lost its, lost its um, pedestal. It was still there, still had some power, but it lost some of its strength to bite. So, as I was saying earlier about um, when we when we um, when we're on this path, and um, we start to wake up, we start to be more present, more mindful, more conscious. We start to see all these different things, these different things about ourselves, and we have this whole you know, edifice of Buddhist understanding to, to uh, sort of to understand ourselves but also to judge ourselves by, sort of a sort of whole new order of things in which to live by. So one of the places I think we need compassion is, is when we see the things that we do to ourselves that just, you know, creating more suffering. So a good example is, you know, we hear a lot in these teachings about how grasping and desire and attachment is suffering. But of course we don't just let go of grasping and desire and attachment, right? We could if we would, we would if we could, but it's a little harder than that. You know, the, the central teaching is let go, so let's just let go. Okay, one, two, three. Everything you attach to that's suffering. Okay, it didn't work. Okay. Well, so we we might see the different ways that we get caught in grasping and desire and longing and something, and we know the very thing we're longing for isn't really going to do it because we've been longing for it for the last twenty years, and we've got got it sometimes. It still didn't do it. Perfect relationship, perfect pizza, the perfect cappuccino, whatever it is you're into. Perfect car, perfect job, perfect lover. You know, we all have our pet. You know, you know faves, right? And then we hear these teachings and we understand it and we can even see the truth of these teachings and then we still do the same thing. As if it really matters, you know, whether we get that perfect cup of coffee. <laughs> my friend Diana Winston who teaches here sometimes, she was on a retreat in IMS on the East Coast and she uh, happened to, she was on this long retreat, was bored out of her mind, and she happened to go in the kitchen and see the menu for the week, and she noticed pizza was on Friday, and it was Monday. <laughs> she was like, wow, pizza, how cool, you know, no more tofu and beans, you know, pizza, this is like a big deal on retreat. And the center does very good pizza, you know, she's like, wow, what kind of, what's it going to be, is it going to be margarita, is it going to be, you know, Greek pizza, you know, had this whole, you know, mind spin for four days. You know, and so it comes to Friday, and she's like, you know, 
happens to get to the head of the line, but she doesn't get to the, quite the head of the line because that would look very unspiritual. So she waits for a couple of people to go and then, you know, does the whole thing, you know. And then gets up to the, you know, the table and there's all these different kinds of pizza and she loads up the plate, you know, she's all excited, sits down, you know, she's been practicing mindfulness, so she's like, okay, take a breath, you know, get really, you know, really maximize the, the pleasure. And she takes a bite. And it's good, but the thought comes, oh, it's just pizza. It's just pizza. You know, it's good, you know, but it's just pizza. It's not, it's not nirvana. It's not like, you know, cosmic ecstasy. It's pizza. You know, and she'd known that, you know, she'd practiced for how many years. And there she was, caught, you know. That's where the humor's really good. And also compassion, just to see, oh, we don't have to beat ourselves up. We just, oh. Look at all the suffering that I created around that. You know, this is a pretty benign example. You know, we could think of a lot more painful ones. Well, the way that we take our thoughts to be true is another huge place of suffering. How many thoughts do you believe that are true that just ain't so? About yourself, about each other, about the world, about your potential, about your true nature. If only I get this, I'll be happy, right? How many times a day do we have that thought? If only they'll shut up. If only, you know, they would notice me. If only I'd get a pay rise. If only I wouldn't lose my job. And we feel the suffering of that contraction. Like this guy I was working with in the hedge fund, in the, in the glory days of hedge funds, not anymore, but in the glory days, when this guy, this trader I was working with, made 50 million that day on a trade for the company, small company. And I was seeing him later that day, and I came into my office, and I was, we sat down, and I said, how are you doing? He looked terrible. And I was like, what, how come you look so terrible? You, I didn't say that, but I said, hey, you know, what's going on? And he said, you know... I knew I could have bought a little earlier and sold a little later and I would have made a three or four million dollars more. Suffering right there. <laughs> and he's suffering now. <laughs> and he's suffering now, right? He really does need that extra three or four million. I think he needs the job. So if compassion is, is, is this natural quality of the heart, why don't we live in it? Why don't we abide in it? So um, first, as I've been saying, you know, we run away from suffering. If we run away from suffering, we close the heart down. Compassion can't arise. Very simple. Because we fear that suffering. We fear the overwhelm. We fear being drowned in it because we have these long-term patterns of numbing out, distracting, checking out, drifting away. This is from uh, uh, Rilke, the poet Rilke. He says, How we squander our hours of pain, how we gaze beyond them into a bitter endurance to see if they have an end, though they are really seasons of us, our winter-enduring foliage. How many times when you're suffering do you gaze beyond them into a bitter endurance to see if they have an end? Okay, this sucks. I'm going to wait it out. I'm going to think about, you know, TGI Fridays. 
I had a friend who um, was uh, in this, he was married, still is, and good friend of mine, and um, he, uh, it was in, he was in a difficult marriage, and it was, they were having a lot of problems for some period of time. And I said to him, I said, well, how, you know, how's it going? How, how are you dealing with this? Are you, are you guys like in therapy? Are you doing something? You know, how are you? He says, no, I just, I just smile and I just hope it's going to go away. <laughs> if I ignore it, he, said, he said, if I ignore it long enough, it will go away. <coughs> Good luck. <laughs> Sometimes we shut the heart down because we have compassion fatigue. A lot of people these days have compassion fatigue in that, you know, we have so much exposure to media, to, to knowing about, you know, endless global tragedies, every country, every nation, that we kind of burn out. It's like too much. It's too much to, you know, to turn on the news or listen to the radio. So we shut down, we numb. And I think it's important to be discerning about how much, you know, just because I'm saying all this, doesn't mean you sit in front of the box and you know watch every you know news item and you know open the heart. You know it doesn't work like that. You know we have to be discerning. I have media fasts. You know where I don't listen to the news sometimes because I know it's I know what's going on. It's too painful and I'm, I'm struggling to just hold that level of pain and not wanting to add an extra layer. And that's not numbing out. It's not checking out. It's like being wise about what we can tolerate. So, um, this quality of compassion, these qualities of the heart, you know, as I think I mentioned last week, often get a bad rap of being a little, you know, goody-goody, namby-pamby, you know, a little... Well, if I'm really good, I'll have lots of compassion. But they're actually very uh, powerful. They're very fierce and they're very, take a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to turn towards the truth, to turn towards ourselves, to turn towards the suffering in another, to turn towards the suffering in the world. This is from um, a colleague uh, who was a Vietnam vet who started practicing meditation about 20 years ago. He said, It had been eight years since my return from Vietnam when I attended my first Vipassana retreat. At least twice a week for all those years, I had sustained the same recurring nightmares common to many combat veterans, dreaming that I was back there, facing the same dangers, witnessing the same incalculable suffering, waking suddenly alert, sweating, and scared. At the retreat, the nightmares did not occur during sleep, but during the meditation. I began to realize that the mind was gradually yielding up memories so terrifying, so life-denying, and so spiritually eroding that I had ceased to be consciously aware that I was still carrying them around. I was, in short, beginning to undergo a profound catharsis by openly facing that which I had most feared and had therefore most strongly suppressed. What also arose at the retreat for the first time was a deep sense of compassion for my past and present, self-compassion for the idealistic young would-be physician forced to witness the most unspeakable obscenities of which humankind is capable, and for the haunted veteran who could not let go of memories he since, who could not acknowledge he carried. Since that first retreat, the compassion has stayed with me. So it takes a lot 
to turn towards whatever we're carrying in our hearts, whatever wounds and pains and skeletons. And yet it's that very turning that allows this quality to develop. This is from an oft-read poem, but it so speaks to this subject by um, Naomi Shihab Nye, Palestinian poet. I'll just read the end of it where she says, um, Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow, you must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it's only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. So, um, you all look terribly gloomy. Um, it's been a depressing talk, I'm sorry. This is really a beautiful quality, and it's, you know, and it's also heavy to bring in this, to bring in the reality of suffering. Um, and... It's what we do on this path. It's what we. It's what we do. It's a necessary quality, and it's one that brings actually a lot of joy. You know, and I'll talk about joy next week. Talking about joy next week, just <laughs> why I balance the compassion. Usually, I talk about them in the same talk, but I decided to separate them. Um. Because the extent that we can open to the suffering in ourselves, to the extent we can open to the capacity of joy. They're completely and utterly linked, in my experience in, in the teaching. And one of the, 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 one of the things, the beautiful things about this quality is the, is the potential for it. And there's, 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 uh, it's really one of the most beautiful uh, features of Buddhist teachings is the capacity of the heart and not just in Buddhist teachings, but all spiritual teachings, the capacity of the heart to really feel compassion. And compassion, which I may have not mentioned here already, is a verb. It really is, it's an action as well as a feeling. It's, it's that which propels us to go out there into the world and do something about the suffering. We don't just sit here and go, oh, may all beings be free from suffering, very good. No, we actually move, it's a movement, it's a movement of the heart, it's a movement of the being. And so, you know, every spiritual tradition is full of, you know, uh, teachers and great adepts who've um, really cultivated this quality. It's interesting that the more spiritually awake people become, generally speaking, the more open the heart becomes, the more compassion becomes, because we see through this illusion, this illusory cell, this prison cell of self-separateness. And one of the qualities, how it's described in the Buddhist tradition, is this quality of bodhicitta, which is this, 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 this welling up in the heart to relieve the suffering of all beings. And there's some wonderful stories of, of great teachers. And, um, the Dalai Lama is a great example. You know, the guy just wants to go and meditate in a cave, and that's all he wants to do. And he flies around in a jet most of the year, giving these big talks, and he just wants to be a quiet monk. But he, you know, he's this powerful 
bodhicitta force that wants to relieve the suffering of all, all life. The Buddha had that. That's why he taught, was to relieve the suffering of all beings. So one of my favorite um, example, contemporary examples of this is Mahagoshananda, who was a monk, uh, Cambodian monk, who um, happened to be studying uh, with a great Thai meditation master during the Cambodian genocide. And... Um, uh, didn't hear about the genocide until he went back to work at the, the um, refugee camps on the border, Thailand and, uh, and Cambodia, and found out he, all 17 members of his family had been killed and all of his monasteries and his fellow monks had been killed. A huge tragedy. And out of the, out of the power of his meta-practice and his compassion, he um, went to all the war-torn zones and there was still... There was still conflict happening when he went back into Cambodia. The Khmer Rouge was still somewhat active on the, in the border camps. And he would do these peace walks through these war zones, military zones, landmine zones. And be, he would chant the meta chant, the, 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 the phrase, hatred never, can never be, hatred never ceases with hatred, only through love alone does hatred cease. And um, this was, you know, after I don't know how many years the Khmer Rouge were active, but at least probably a, a decade where. You know, this Buddhism was the fabric of the country, and and for the people to see a monk walking around in this very innocent pilgrimage, chanting this beloved chant that was the most beloved chant in the country, um, was such a powerful healing force for the people. I mean, just an example of how compassion arises and and, and relieves the suffering. You know, the Mother Teresas of this world are also great examples. So I'll close with a couple of quotes. The Dalai Lama said, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. And if you want to be happy, practice compassion. Because it, what it, why, that, why that is, is because it opens our hearts. When our hearts are open, connected, feeling, what do we feel? We feel there's a lightness, there's a joy even, there's a beauty, there's a radiance, there's a connectedness. This is from Rumi. There is no companion but love, no starting or finishing. Yet there is a road, the friend calls from there. Why do you hesitate when lives are in danger? So, thank you for your attention this evening. And um, may we all evoke and bring forth this quality of compassion to ourselves, to each other, to your family to your friends, to your people at work, people you find difficult in this life, to your enemies, to your political adversaries, to all those people who are in suffering, known and unknown, seen and unseen, voiced and unvoiced. May all beings be free of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.